Now, let me tell you about what my thoughts about being an undercover is. This is something you can't teach. You either have this or you don't have this. You have to be outgoing personality. You have to be comfortable around people not like you and maybe that you don't even like. You have to be a person like a chameleon. You have to be, of course, extroverted. Now, if you don't have these skills in your personality at that age of your life, you're not going to get it. We are what we are, you know? So if you think that, oh, man, you know, I'm a bookworm, I'm, a, I'm this, but I want to become an undercover agent, so I want to go to the school and become one. You're going to wind up getting yourself hurt or somebody hurt along the way. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome, welcome, welcome back, amigos, amigas, players, playerettes, dude, dudettes, everybody in between. Welcome back to another fascinating, scintillating, tentilating, obsquatulating, which means to flee, uh, episode of Game of Crimes. <laughs> I am your host with the most hair, Morgan Wright, welcoming you back, literally here with my partner in crime. Hey, everybody, it's Murph, uh, and sorry about that. Uh, what was that word you used? Obsquatulating. Okay. Is that... Something you just looked up or just came to no, mind? No, no, actually, that was the word of the day. I used that on a defense attorney one time. We used to have this thing going back and forth, and uh, uh, he was actually he was a brilliant guy. I mean, just uh, too bad he was a defense attorney, but he would come up <laughs> with the word of the day. And so I used the. I said, okay. I said, well, how come you didn't do X, Y, or Z? I said, well, I couldn't because your client your client obsquatulated. And he looked at me for a second. He goes, okay, well played. What does that mean? Well, obsquatulate means to flee, you know, to depart, to, you know, to run away. So your client obsquatulated. Uh, so you won that day. That's good. I won that day. Yeah. Anyway, hey, guys, welcome back. Um, we Neither Murph or I will be obsquatulating until this episode is over. True. And I, I hope I won't ever be doing that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what that means, but hey, we'll go with what he says. It today. is. You can you can look it up. I, I won't kid you on that one. So, hey guys, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Uh, the script calls for small talk, uh, which we just did, and housekeeping. So now we're in the housekeeping portion. Hey, head on over to Apple, Spotify, those five stars. Hit those reviews. Really helps us out quite a bit. We've been seeing a lot of impact from that, so we really appreciate you guys doing that for us. Just head on over, give those five stars, drop in some comments, let us know what you think. Also, at the same time, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got everything. We've got our book list, our merch. By the way, our guest we'll be talking about today, he's got a book. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about that. He's got a book, too. Also, follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Facebook, and the Instagram. Hey, somebody took issue with me calling it the Instagram. It's like the Ohio State. It's just what I do. I just call it the Instagram, you know? <laughs> it's like if you're in California, you call the interstate the I-4 or the one the. Yeah. 10 or whatever. The 10, yeah. The the 10, the 4, yeah. Anyway, hey, guess where else you got to be, though, Murph? Let me ask you one time, but very quickly, three times. Where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be? You got to come on over on Patreon and check out what's going on over there. There's a lot of extra content that you're not going to hear on the regular podcast. Um, it's not so much as interviewing guests as we have a couple fun things. We have the Q&A, the monthly Q&A. We'll rate a movie, a law enforcement-related movie. We have a section called You Can't Make This Shit Up, which is hilarious. You can't. <laughs> we have 911, What's Your Emergency, which is uh, more analytical, and it tests your investigative abilities. 
Morgan surprises me with a case every month, and, and we go over that. And it's just we well, Mark, at your age, I got to tell you, it's the same case every month. Just at your age, you think it's a new case. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, whatever works for us. If we can get our listeners to come on over, that we're good with it. But uh, and we have a couple episodes where we just kind of take a current event and give you our opinion, and we solicit your input back, and it's all fun. Just come over and give us a shot. Try it. If you don't like it. Well, you're going to be stuck with us. He's pointing at me because he thought I was going to use the C word here. Don't use the C word. But just come over and try it and see what you think. There's levels there, uh, things that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So give us a shot. And Murph, because Murph said so. By the way, you didn't see my little thing I posted on Facebook, did you? About West Virginia being reincarnated. Yeah, if you die and come back as a hillbilly, is that called reincarnation? Yep, that's it, brother. That I, I have full intentions of responding to that. All right. Just as soon as you can think of something clever to say. Well, so, I, saw, I saw somebody responded back and said, oh, I just figured out you guys have the uh, the Kansas hillbilly thing going on, your little shtick going back and forth. It's like, yeah, that's so good. Yeah, you know, it's our cover. Yes. It's like uh, Peter Sellers and in Inspector Clouseau. Is he really that dumb or is he crazy like a fox? We'll yeah. never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but we have fun. That's the thing. Yeah. So come on over and give us a shot on Patreon. Yeah, and if you're uh, and if you just want to do a pause for the cause, PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. Now, for the disclaimer, mm-hmm. every show has to have a disclaimer. We should have we should have uh, dramatic music while we do the disclaimer. Here we go. We'll do dramatic music like this. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... Turn the music off because we're going to have some fun. <laughs> we never we never take ourselves serious here. I don't know. We have a little soundboard here. We're playing. Yeah, we do. But before we get into it, Murph, guess what time it is? Guess what time it is? Guess what time it is? I bet it's time for... Small town police blotter. And let me tell you, we have collected a a variety of stories over, you know, in the last 66 episodes going on. I mean, we're talking over getting close to 200 stories that we've done. So it's becoming harder and harder to find stories. But for you, I scowl the bowels of the Internet. Scowl, scowl, scour the bowels of the scowl. I scowl at the bowels. That means I have a frown at your... Your rear end. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's getting nasty. <laughs> nasty. Well, Steve, this one comes from an area you might know. Have you ever heard of a little place called Boone, North Carolina? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, that's where Appalachia State is. Boone, North Carolina, Friday night. Boone police received a report of suspicious behavior in the 1300 block of Marshall Street. Turned out to be four males with flashlights comparing facial hair growth. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Look at my mullet and my beard. I tell you what, if that's what's going on at Boone, that is suspicious. <laughs> what the hell are y'all doing out there? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, just, just comparing facial hair. Okay. I, I, maybe they're young, they're old. I don't know. Just well, that's pro- what, Probably students from Appalachia State over here. By the way, they got uh, watched them play football yesterday. I watched um, that game too, man. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was the biggest, <laughs> next to a bank robbery, you know, that, that's the biggest shootout I've seen in a long time. 40 points in the fourth quarter alone. Yeah. I mean, Connie and I were watching it, and I said, the, the final score looked more like a basketball score than it did a, a college football score. Apparently, defense was optional in that game. But, hey, we digress. Now, drinking well, game. Now, one more question. Do you know what their mascot is? Uh, Appalachian State? Yeah, it's a Mountaineer. But somebody wears a 
coonskin hat. Like, so they kind uh, of come in under West Virginia Mountaineers, but hey, they're Mountaineers. The Mountaineers. Go Appy State. Go Appy State. All right. Hey, on 321-14, guess what? What? An officer checked on a subject running down Cougar Lake Drive mm-hmm. and stopped to make sure everything was okay. Steve, did you know the student had just walked his girlfriend back to her apartment on what's called the 400 side, and after watching a scary movie, he was running back to his apartment after being frightened? <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, I don't watch scary movies for that same reason. <laughs> and you're not going to do her a lot of good if you can't watch a scary movie, then walk yourself home. Well, I'll tell you what. Well, you know, get her home safely, and then what she doesn't know, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> run away, run away. <laughs> well, speaking of that, today my middle son is coming over. We are watching uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, oh, over geez. this Labor Day weekend. <laughs> Too much free time on your hands. i got to find more for you to do. Yeah, okay, thanks, pal. So, one, <laughs> hey, here's what else you can do. At 1.30 a.m., we, you, we can go out and issue trespass warnings for something like this. All right. A non-student was issued a trespass warning in Dan Allen Deck. He had removed his pants and underwear and sat on the hood of a vehicle not belonging to him and rubbed his buttocks on the hood of the vehicle. And he got a citation for that, huh? Not for exposing himself or anything. Well, maybe I guess it was private property, which led to the trespassing. Hey, but you know what? Maybe he maybe he thought the vehicle needed a racing stripe. (laughs) (laughs) Where's that drum thing? There we go. Thank you. you. I'll be playing here all week. I promise you, folks, we won't use this stuff again. It's just we're we're trying out a new platform. Mm. It's got a couple built in sound effects. We thought we would, uh, you know, entertain you with some of this new technology we are using. Well, Well, it just shows that we're trying to bring on the latest technology. So you guys get the best quality that you can from us. The best quality that you can. Hey, by the way, speaking of that, speaking of quality, we got a quality guest. We got a real quality guest, even though he's from the FBI. (laughs) <laughs> he's quality guy. Now, he's a big boy. I wouldn't take him off too much. I, like I said, just as long as I can run first, you know, he'll yep. have a hard time catching. But if he gets a hold of me, I'm toast. Yep. Yep. I believe so. This is, uh, this is a guy. It took us a while to get him on because he's, uh, he's quite a bit in demand. He's very well known. He's got his book out that Morgan mentioned earlier, The Making of Jack Falcone, which you'll see on our book page. But we're, we're bringing on this week, Mr. Jack Garcia, a retired FBI agent. And this is a... I love this story because this is a, not getting too far in the story, but just, just preface it with this. This is a Cuban-born American who worked undercover and infiltrated one of the mafia crime families for three years, portraying himself as an Italian. Italian. <laughs> and, they, and they were going to make him made him they were going to make him a made guy. I mean, now that's an undercover accomplishment. A Cuban American portraying himself as an Italian. And in the first part of his story, it almost sounded like the story of Luis Navia, born in Cuba, parents fled because of Fidel Castro. I mean, they probably, that's a small nation. I bet you if we go back far enough, they knew each other. But the other interesting thing, though, too, Steve, is he had a test to find out if you're really Italian or not. And you said, hey, let's go eat at Olive Garden. And he said he (laughs) fell out of his chair. (laughs) Well, I want to know if he's authentic or not. It says Olive Garden, authentic Italian. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it is. Well, hey, no, this is going to be a great one, too, because Jack, great guy, great story. Um, And just I'll tell you what. This is this is what the American story is supposed to be all about. The American dream. Here's somebody who comes to this country. Becomes well, you'll find out how he became an American citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he joined the. He, this guy joins the FBI. I think one of the first one, first or second Cuban-born, second, second. second Cuban-born uh, FBI agent they've ever had, and it's just a story of persistence. But it, this guy served his country, 
And the other stuff he did too, Steve, I think uh, what he did when he investigated police corruption, you know, Murph and I both say nobody uh, hates a bad cop more than a good cop and what they did to take down. And, and I'm not just talking about people who jaywalked and illegally parked. We're talking about people who are involved in major corruption, Absolutely. drug dealing, things like that. You know, so got a couple great stories on that. But Steve, we will never get to the story if I keep pontificating and I don't allow you to say are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and Olive Garden-friendly game of all, the game of crimes? <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, when you guys get into the story, this, what I'm getting ready to say, is going to mean so much more this time, because this is very exciting. So get in, sit down, shut up, hold on, bring on Jack Garcia, Mr. Jack Falcone. Again, once again, state and local law enforcement comes to the rescue for the FBI. And what do I get? I get trashed by this guy already. He doesn't even know me. Well, that's what we do. That's what we do best. You know, we trash everybody and build ourselves up. And then put out a press release. Don't forget the press release. Excluding you guys. (laughs) That's all right. We're used to it. Oh man! Well, we had we had a couple technical challenges. We overcame them, and then once we were starting this, I decided you know it's like the episode we just did with uh, John Kufta that we were just talking about. Um, again, once again, oh look, look, he's already putting on the shades no, too, man. He's, he's he's glasses. These are regular glasses. Do they come out shady? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you're, you come out shady. I don't know. You use. Go ahead, put them on. Don't let us stop you. Come no, this on, way man. I could see you guys better. There you go. About okay. that, I don't put on oh. shade. I'm not into that shade hats or any of that uh, disguise stuff. All right, this is big. this well, is legit. <laughs> this is legit. well. Well, let's. We probably ought to let everybody know what we're doing. So we have yet another episode. This one's going to be good because this, as you can already tell from this guy, it's got something to do with wise guys. So uh, welcome to the podcast to our show of shows, Game of Crimes, former FBI Special Agent Jack Garcia. How you doing? How you guys doing over there? How you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing? Uh, hey, I got to ask you, Jack, what part of the South are you from? Like South Bronx? The South, yeah, the South Bronx. I'm actually from Havana, Cuba. So figure that out. But I grew up in uh, Washington Heights and then uh, the Bronx is where I came from. I noticed the Bronx is the you- only city with a prefix. Think about that. The Bronx. The yeah, because people call it the U- – people say, you know, are you from the Ukraine? It's not the Ukraine. It's Ukraine. But the Bronx is the only place that has to have the in there, like the Ohio State, the Bronx. No. And it's – exactly. It is the only one. I love the Bronx. I It's changed a lot since I was there, let me tell you. So when you speak Spanish, does it come out with a New York accent or what? No, it's not start- like a Cuban accent. That's one thing about Spanish. We're able to detect, like, where you're from. Like if you're a Mexican or a Colombian, just by the way we speak and uh, the accent that we carry. Uh, so it's very distinct. Like I can't, when I used to work on the cover, I never posed as a Colombian because they speak in a different manner or Dominican or Puerto Rican or Cuban. So once yeah. they hear me speak in Spanish, they know right away I'm off the boat Cuban. Cubano. So Cubano. Let's, hear some, let's hear something in Cuban. Well, no, first of all, it's Spanish. It was not Cuban because we have the same <laughs> I love it. I love it. We are strictly speak Spanish. And uh, like, oye, chico, ¿qué pasa? ¿Cómo está? ¿Cómo va todo hoy bien? Tengo una hambre horrible. Te lo digo. So, so when you're listening to that, what makes it Cuban versus Colombian? 
Well, uh, well, many. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Puerto Ricans, uh, their dialect, sometimes they omit rolling the R. So we'll mm-hmm. say carro, car. Carro. They would say cajo. You see, uh, a, a, a Dominican would say, esta vaina, tigrazo, you know, that kind of way. Mexican, when they talk, it's more like singing, oye, chico, como estai? Como va todo por ahí? You know, and, and it's a distinct way, and Colombians also have their own dialect. So it's very difficult to imitate you being from a different part of the world to someone who's because they know right away. And the minute I speak, they go, oh, you're Cuban, right? And right away, they're able to tell. So, Mi español es perfecto, because I can roll my R's. I can go, arriba. See, you can't, Murph can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see how he can do it. But Jack, when I learn Spanish, I mean, you can tell from my accent, I'm not from the North. So when I walk in the room, it's hola, y'all. Hola, baby. Well, that's the same thing in English. Think about that. We could tell someone from the South by the way they talk, y'all, how you doing, you know, that kind of stuff. As opposed to a Yankee, New Yorkers, we have this distinct uh, accent and mannerism of speaking that people right away say, well, you're from New York, right? Just because the way we are. We're the same thing in the Spanish world. We're able to tell where you're kind of from. And people from Kansas, we can't figure out what the heck they sound like. Uh, They sound like him. (laughs) They sound like Morgan. Uh, Is that where Morgan is from, Kansas? Well, they won't claim him, but he says he is. Yeah, yeah. That's funny coming from you, Murph, somebody from the hills of Tennessee who grew up moonshining uh, before he became a Fed. You got to have a retirement job. You got to have a retirement job, you know? (laughs) That doesn't make him a bad guy. That's right. That's right. You're only a moonshiner if you get caught. Yeah. By the way, I was in college in Richmond. Everybody was moonshining down in Richmond. Yeah. Well, here's a, here's a piece of uh, law enforcement trivia. So the uh, Carroll Doctrine that came from the searches of vehicles, 1928, guess what? That was because agents stopped people hauling moonshine. Believe it was in Ohio. Wow. Um, and that's, that's what set the whole Carroll Doctrine about searching vehicles was moonshine, Murph. So you're just carrying on a tradition. As George, you know, or as uh, Hank Williams said, it's just a family tradition. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, moonshining is what created and made the mafia that powerful because yeah. control all of the, uh, you know, during the, uh, prohibition. The, the prohibition as far as that. So they handled the distribution, the homes and all that. So they kind of blossomed that way in the power that they obtained because of prohibition was kind of like kind of the beginning of the mob, you know, the so now, did mob. you work, did you work uh, UC against like Al Capone or anything? Was that back in your <laughs> no, day? Hey, I'm not that old now. Okay. Al Capone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I didn't work Al Capone. No. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can't wait. I, I got to tell our listeners, this. I can't wait for, for, uh, for Jack and Morgan to meet in person. Cause Jack, you're what? Six, four. I'm yeah, say six you're... four, about three hundred and ninety something. Yeah, that's okay. I, think... I can outrun you. <laughs> yeah, but when he catches you, he's gonna snap you. <laughs> hey, I'm a good shot, Morgan. There you go. There you go. So am I. So am I. All right, but let's 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 well, let's let's kind of go back and let's do this thing of ours because we always when we bring on our guests and you guys already got a good idea, but we want to say how did you get started in this thing of ours, this thing we called law enforcement. So. What did, did you have family members? You know, was it something that fascinated you? How did they? And actually, before we get to that, let's start off by: Were you born in Cuba? And if so, how did you get to the United States? Tell us about that. 
Yeah, I was born in Cuba in 1952. And, you know, my father worked for the Cuban government. At that time, it was Batista. Uh, He he was part of the accounting, ran the accounting department there. Everything was well. And then, of course, Castro came in. And at first, people supported Castro because he came under the premise that let's make Cuba for the Cubans. So at first, everybody was kind of like, hey, this guy is getting rid of the corruption of Batista and all of that, the mob, which was very prevalent in Havana. So what happened then after that, the Castro started changing his ideology. He started hanging out with the Russians. Next thing you know, he was trying to make that into a socialist communist state. So that's what my father, with the help of the FBI attache office, was able to leave in the cover of darkness before us. And he left in 1960. We didn't leave to 1961. The next day that my father left at night, the next morning we were raided in our home by the uh, uh, by the stormtroopers, the Cuban uh, stormtroopers looking for my dad. We had to leave our home, and then we went to live with our grandparents for a year while my father was here in America working three jobs to raise enough money to get us out of Cuba and bring us home, which he finally did in November of 61. Now, during that time, my father did, through my mother, get a communication from Castro's government saying, look, we checked him out. We know that he was not involved in the corruption. We want him to return. And my father, when we relay that yeah, information, right. he said, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll be right over. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. so he came here, he raised money, and then we came uh, in November of 61, and uh, we've been here ever since. Well, how did you get out of the country if they were targeting your father? Why wouldn't they hold you hostage or hold yeah. you guys back to force him to come back? Well, the thing, they didn't do that because I guess it wasn't that severe. And also keep in mind that they were able to clear his name. And then he had to go through the legitimate way of getting us here. At that time, it was still, you had to file for a visa and all of that. We went through the process of that, the medical exams. And then finally, we were able to get out in one of the last flights directly from Havana to Miami, which is where we landed. Even though my father was in New York, we landed there for like a week. My father says, I don't want to live down here. There's too many Cubans in Miami. We went back to New York where he thought it was more of an opportunity. And we went to live in Washington Heights for a long time. So, I, you know, we actually lived during the uh, uh, the Bay of Pigs. I mean, I, I, could rem- Bay of Pigs invasion. Yeah. Yeah, I could remember like my parent, my mom, rather, putting us underneath the dining table with mattresses on top and hearing fire, you know, gunshots and everything else. I mean, I was very frightening for a little kid. I also remember being at a private Catholic school, the Maris Brothers, when the soldiers came in and they kind of took it over because they were, of course, posing Catholicism and everything else. I remember being uh, there uh, as well. So I do have some memories because I was nine years old when I left Cuba. So uh, and then we came to the U.S. and didn't speak a word of English, came with just the clothes in our back had no money. My father was working, like I said, three jobs. Uh, And uh, we, uh, after some time, uh, we just got settled. And always my father thought we were able to come back. He actually bought round trip tickets. And that he never, of course, used. But we, we had the intentions that 
we came to this country as political refugees and that banana republic was going to be overthrown. But we all know what happened with that. And uh, he's still to this day, there's, you know, it is what it is in Havana, Cuba. Did, did he have to use any of that money to make payoffs to somebody in the Castro regime or was it all above board? Well, I don't know. I don't know whether he did to get us uh, uh, out of there, but we went the legitimate route because I remember having to be vaccinated. I remember going to countless interviews and that's when we came here to the U.S. Uh, but uh, I mean, I was separated from my father about a year, year and a half and uh, it, it was really, uh, you know, when you were that age, it was very difficult and you really didn't understand. Like my mother, for instance, her sister believed in the Castro regime. So they, to the, their dying day, never spoke again. And if you think about it, that was just over politics, you know, and my mother, mother just refused to talk to her sister who, you know, drank the Kool-Aid about Castro and the way it is. And that happened to a lot of, uh, People in Cuba, you know, families were broken up and it was very sad. DEA, my first four years, I was stationed in Miami and and I'm, you know, like Morgan said, I grew up in Tennessee and West Virginia because I'm like a cross between a redneck and a hillbilly. And I get to Miami. And, I mean, you talk about a fish out of water, you know, and, and the the enforcement group, they we'd go to lunch down in Calle Ocho and I, you know, I didn't speak any Spanish. And I'm like, what the fuck did we, I mean, excuse Still doesn't sound like you speak any we, Spanish. We, <laughs> we drive across the bridge and land in Cuba. I mean, the menus are in Spanish and the waiters speak in Spanish. So it was a very, oh, yeah, there, very, uh, yeah, experience. and signs too, where yeah. they say we speak English. Yeah. I mean, we go to the cemetery to see my parents and you buy the flowers and no, my wife, who only understands it because she's Irish German, and she's kind of like, no one speaks uh, Spanish here. I mean English, and and it's kind of everybody's assumed that you're bilingual, and it's a very uh, you know international cosmopolitan city. Not just with Cubans, there's a big influx of Venezuelans here uh, in uh, Miami as well. Oh, it's, it's a major mixing pot down there. But you know, as as time went on. And you get to know some of the Cuban Americans that came there to to flee from Castro. I mean, we met other Cubans other than you know just the Marilitos that were coming over doing all the the, the mayhem and carnage down there with the drug trade and murders and kidnappings and so forth. But when you talk to the law abiding Cuban Americans, you got to respect them, you know, for having the courage to get out of their country to come to somewhere where they think they can get a better life, and and most of them do, quite honestly. You know, and, and yeah. it's, I love to hear them talk. I love to hear their experiences. Uh, you go down on Calle to some of those restaurants. Um, and I've just, is it, uh, what's the restaurant? Versailles. Versailles. Exactly. Thinking about. You, I like to go right. there just because of the history associated with planning the Bay yeah, of I, invasion and great people. Yeah. Love it. Miami is my wife and I, that's our favorite city in the whole United States is Miami. Yeah, and it is very culturally. I mean, they still the hardcore Cubans are here. They have the Domino Park where people play dominoes. You know, the other thing that's of kind of interest about the the Cuban uh, people here is keep in mind there were two influx. There were the Cubans who had the money, who were middle class and above, were able to fly out of Cuba. Right. But it wasn't until 19, and this was, of course, Castro came into power in 59. We got there and came out of 61. Castro stopped the flights direct from Miami, uh, I'm sorry, from Cuba to Miami, and then people had to go to Europe and come here. But the interesting thing about uh, all of this is that 
the Cubans that are here are we're all, you know, enterprising people. So a lot of the representation of the hard workers, it wasn't until the Mario boat lift in 1980 where Castro literally opened the jail cells. Yeah, we got all the, the prisoners. Silence. Yeah. Exactly. So, of course, they're mixed in that we're real legitimate people, but that's what caused the big crime wave here in Miami. And I remember the Atlanta uprising where they had the prison. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of interesting because the Atlanta uprising was based that they were going to be returned to Cuba. And they said, look, we'll stay in prison here. We don't want to go back there at all. So they decided to have this riot. And uh, we wound up interviewing all of those prisoners. And all of them said, look, I'm here. This is where I want to stay. I don't want to go back. But these guys, you look at their criminal past, murder, robbery, thief. Of course, a lot of these guys claim that they got uh, arrested for and got 20 years sentence for stealing a bag of beans and rice. You know, whether you believe that or not, I don't know. But these guys look like they were some hardcore prisoners. Uh, and a lot of the revolt was that they didn't even want to go back to Cuba because they know what their fate would have been. That's hey, so interesting. Gotta, they choose a federal prison in the United States or a state prison in the United States to go on back to, to three hot syndicate and you know on Team America, man. Hey, yes, Leavenworth. That's where they were. Oh well, Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, I can, yeah. No, I'm sorry. The one in Pennsylvania. What's the one in Pennsylvania? Uh, uh, I, Lewisburg. Lewisburg. Oh yeah, we were just uh, talking about that with uh, John Kufta. Hey, real quick uh, before we get too far from this. Even though they said they had cleared your dad and everything was okay, did your dad, what, what, or what did you guys believe? Had he returned, would he have been safe, do you think, or was that just a scam to get him back? Because I, the reason I say that, one of our other guests, I can't remember which episode it was, Murph, I think it was 29, Luis Navia. Mm-hmm. Luis Navia was a major narco trafficker, got popped with 29 tons coming out of Venezuela, I think case work by customs and dea his family was cuban their story almost emulates yours the same he was he they 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 got out right when castro came in and the whole thing was is he was a legit he was a legitimate businessman so the reason i'm saying all that is so many similarities uh luis navia went one way you went another but would your father had really been safe had he returned you know that's a great question my father in his heart felt that he would not because he did not trust the the fact that they overtook this government, you know, in a kind of a coup. That's what Castro did. They took over, you know, Cuba. So he never really confided, believed them either way. He knew he was not guilty, but he certainly wasn't going to go and take a chance and go there because that wound up becoming a communist. I mean, they literally told my mother, we welcome him back to join the regime. So it was started at that time, like I said, with a lot of the Russian influence. So he wanted no part of that. He wanted to come to America um, because this was an opportunity that he figured the U.S. would help to take Castro out and they could return. Yeah, if only that had happened, right? Because, you know. Oh, I think about that all the time, Morgan. Think about that. I, I was in Cuba like a little boy playing, like when you guys were little. Next thing you know, no, 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 no dude. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that old. I wasn't born yet. I was born in '60. So he wasn't born. Oh, he you were born in '60. Oh, yeah, I was born in '52. But you're a little boy, and all of a sudden, you got to pack up. You move. You don't know what's going on. And next thing you know, you're at the airport. I was cavity search as a kid coming here to America from Cuba. 
And I remember they calling us worms. I remember insulting. I remember the stewardess having some kind of like bug sprayer just to fuck with us, all the people on the plane. And I remember landing here with absolutely nothing. Our pod. We immediately went to our family and uh, we built our roots here. Right? We went to live in the Heights, fifth floor walk up in Washington Heights. Uh, I remember the house was like decorated early Ralph Crandom. And my mother would always say, listen, it doesn't matter how old this house is, as long as it's clean. We used to have to get down and clean with soap the floors and the walls. And we had to keep everything pristine. And then my father then finally thought he moved on up and he went to the Bronx because he was living in a two-family house on 234th Street and White Plains Road. That's where I live. Uh, we went to move and uh, got, got into the Mount St. Michael Academy, which was part of the Maris Brothers. And uh, that's what my parents did throughout my life is everything they sacrificed, they went without. And this is just not my family. A lot of immigrants, I'm sure, and not necessarily just Cubans, they went without. They didn't have the big televisions, the beautiful luxury furniture, the couch. It was everything was going into education. They wanted us to get the best education where we could be safe and secure and grow up there. My mother had to work. My mother was an opera singer in Cuba. She worked as a bookkeeper, for crying out loud, and a key punch operator. My father, who was an accountant, was working uh, all kinds of menial jobs. And then he eventually was able to start his own accounting firm. So, But that's just not our story. That's all the immigrant stories. The one that used to be out there with a lot of Cubans and every ethnic groups. I mean, the Irish went through it. Italians went through it. We got to America. We wanted to build the best world. Now, years later, you would always wonder, if, if Cuba left, would my parents have packed up and taken us back to their home? I mean, they had to miss. This is their life. In the middle of the night, they'd left, and, and now they're, they're in a new country learning a new language. But here, really, and here's a perfect example of the true American success story. That's your yeah. mom and dad. I mean, that's something to be proud of. Well, uh, I can't imagine as a kid getting ca cavity search. Let's go back to that. Let's not gloss over that too much. When you... When you were flying out, were you flying on an American, not not American Airlines, but an American-based airline, or was that something out of... I think it was a Pan Am. I think it was America. And what happened is you had to go to a room, and then they checked you. You took your clothes off, and you checked to see if you were smuggling jewelry. Because people were leaving Cuba wanting to take their personal belongings. But you were being you were being checked by the Cuban authorities, right? Pan Am. The Cuban authorities, yeah. correct. Not, not the American. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to make sure that everything that was from Cuba stayed in Cuba would remain in Cuba. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Well, what, having had a couple colonoscopies, I kind of get the feeling of what it's like <laughs> to be Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Listen, it, I, as a kid, you didn't understand. I mean, you cry as a kid. Then you're also I, I remember my, you know, so when we went from Miami to New York flying, I remember my father saying, uh, we know in Spanish, we don't speak English. He said, just all you have to say is, I'm sorry. <laughs> Americans are very forgiving. You could step on their feet. You could hit them on the side and just say, I'm sorry. And they would forgive you. And, I, and that's kind of what we learned. And then we got there. We tried to learn English. We couldn't get into a marriage school because even though we wanted to go to a marriage school, they had to take an entrance test 
Now, not speaking English, how do you think I did in that entrance test? Right? So they want to take this big Mama Luke nine-year-old and put him like in a pre-K. And my parents said no. So I went to PS 173. They sent us to a, a public school until I learned English so good enough to take the test. And that's what we took it in the Bronx at the school, Mount St. Michael. And I was able to catch up with my grade. But I had to learn. How, how long did that take to learn English? Well, we had to learn English because it was kind of like an English second language. And the teacher, I always remember her, Judith Horowitz. This lady was so sweet. She helped me. Like I would say, my choose. And she would say, it's not choose, it's shoes. And I would practice in front of the mirrors, the SHs and all of that. I wanted to assimilate. I wanted to, to be able to be like the rest of the kids because I felt uh, awkward at, at that time. And, and um, you know, it, I think that's all I did. I put in the hardware. And my father would conduct classes in English and math for us on the weekend, but his English was horrible, worse than mine. So we were learning bad English, and then we would go to school and learn the right English. <laughs> You know, the reason I ask you that, Jack, is is one of my granddaughters is here in Orlando. She just started kindergarten this year. And in her classroom, uh, you know, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans around here. This is a very eclectic neighborhood that we live in, and we actually enjoy it. But in her class, I think there's her and one other girl that speak English only. And so the teacher's bilingual. She tells, you know, the class in English what she wants them to do, and then she switches over and tells them in Spanish. So her nickname, <laughs> our granddaughter's nickname is Nina because her preschool teacher was Hispanic also. I think she was Puerto Rican, and that's what she called Danielle because she's so little. Oh, my God. So, you know, everybody has a little nickname, and, and Danielle's is Nina. Nina, that's a cute name, though. Nina is a little girl. You know that. Or a girl. Oh, right. yeah. 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 Well, I was just thinking of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, but that's a history there you lesson. Go. But, uh... <laughs> He's because he's from Kansas. Hey, well, but look, there was, a, there was, I can't, I'm trying to think of the comedian's name. I, 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 I'm not sure it's the guy they call Fluffy or another guy, but he was talking about teaching English coming over. He said, yeah. And then I learned, you know, Mexican judo. He goes, what is this? You don't know if I have a knife. You don't know if I have a gun. <laughs> he says, pronunciation matters. Oh, and, and it does because, you know, they, you, you wanted as a kid to assimilate because I had friends of all ethnic groups, you know, and I just didn't keep with just Hispanics. It was English kids and black kids and, and all of that. That was a part of it. And you all wanted to be, you know, to fit in. But that was the mentality back in America, back in the, I would say, in the 60s. Certainly not now, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, I mean, you talk about, that's why I didn't want to gloss over your background too much. The minute you said Cuba, you were born in Cuba, I thought, oh, okay, I know where we got to go with this. And that's that kind of sets the stage for now getting into this, getting into law enforcement. What was it during your formative years, you know, going to the schools or did, did you ever have something that came up says, this is what I want to be when I grow up was being a cop was being, well, first of all, your parents sacrificed everything and yet you still turned out to be an FBI agent. Were they ever disappointed? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but wait, if I could guys tell you what happened to me at the school, uh, when I was a little kid at the marriage schools in Cuba, they, the soldiers came in to oversee the teachings. So they would sit in class and what Castro did, he put a lot of women soldiers because they were priests and brothers and they kind of found it offensive because they would live in the courtyard, these uh, 
beautiful Cuban women, the soldiers, right? So I remember one day, it was a very, very hot day, and we're sitting there. You know, it's Cuba. It's 1,000 degrees, and you're sitting there, and the, the soldier gets up, and the teacher is teaching. He says, listen, kids. He says, how hot are you guys? Are you guys all hot? You can't take it, right? He says, why don't you all pray to your God and pray for ice cream? Wouldn't that taste good right now? So sure enough, all those kids get up, and we pray, eyes closed, please, a hot day like today. Boom, and he says, all right, now open your eyes. Where is the ice cream? Where is your God? He let you down. He says, now I want you to pray to Fidel. So we said, for ice cream. So we all got there and prayed for Fidel, and another soldier came in wheeling a wagon with ice cream. That was the indoctrination oh, that they were putting wow. through manipulation. and the manipulation of us as children. But I, I, I'm sorry, I digress, but that that is what... Oh, oh wait a minute. That's part of our drinking game. I get accused of saying, but I digress. Now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. For those of you keeping track, Jack launched this. So that's drinking game number one. That's drinking number go. one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fantastic that you're saying this, Jack, because you live through it. It's not, yep. and that's what our whole podcast is about. We want people telling their own stories. But the fact that there's people out here in the United States that are supporting communism, that's what communism yes. is, right? That was a perfect example. Yeah, of exactly. It. It, was, it, it really, uh, so many so many things like that, and, and it was just uh, sad. But getting back to how I guess I got involved in law enforcement, I didn't give it a thought. I went to high school. I got a scholarship playing football. I went to Texas, uh, and there what happened is they changed the coaching staff at West Texas State. We're at in Texas. West, oh, West Texas, Texas State, State, yeah, where Mercury okay. Morris and Dwayne Thomas and all those guys went. So they changed the coaching staff because – they were hiring too many minorities, putting them in as athletes, and they were not hiring local folks, players. So I wound up leaving there. I went to a junior college in New York, and then from there I went to the University of Richmond. Now, all I did was the spiders. All I ever wanted to do. Yeah. Richmond spiders. Richmond yeah. spiders. And here I am from the Bronx, Cuban, and Richmond. I love Richmond. Richmond was nice. They thought I was like Ricky Ricardo. You're from New York. You carry a gun. <laughs> Yeah, I got, you know, whatever they want to hear. But everybody was very nice there. So what what happened was at Richmond is we were playing the game. And before every game, the coach to keep us from staying out of trouble would take to see a movie. At that time, it was Serpico. So I went to see Serpico with Al Pacino, which I recommend anybody, everyone to see. Just a fantastic. And then I realized was that moment where I said, this is what I want to be. I want to be in law enforcement. I want to be NYPD. I want to be this guy because he works undercover and all that. That was it. I was set for life. This is what I want to pursue. But then me and another Cuban brother of mine that played football at uh, Richmond, there was actually two Cubans, me and, and my buddy Ramon, we went and applied. Well, forget about the NYPD. Let's apply for the, the best law enforcement agency in the world. See, that hurts you guys, yeah. right? Say it, say it after me. Go ahead. <laughs> the best law enforcement agency in the world, the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Morgan, that's got to stab you, right? So anyway, we went and we went to apply. I didn't hear anything from the Bureau. Then I figured, ah, the hell with it. They don't want me for a reason. Then I came home and I applied for the NYPD, Secret Service. I applied for all local cops. Nobody was hiring in 1975. Everybody was being laid off. So what happened was I'm sitting at home watching Univision. 
right? And I see this non-native Spanish speaker destroying the Spanish language, saying something like, uh, I guess sounding like Steve, uh, like Steve Murphy when he's talking Spanish with his sudden drawl. Y'all come, yeah, <laughs> come down and if you speak Spanish and apply it, I'm going, wait a minute, I got an application. I haven't heard from them. So I next day I called the FBI I says, hey, I've just watched Univision. You guys are looking for Spanish speakers. The guy says to me, well, let me look into it. He sure enough calls me back and he says, the reason why we never contacted you is you're not even a citizen. So I didn't, I always consider myself an American. You know, you're a kid come to this mm-hmm. country. You just became Americanized. So I said, well, what do I got to do? He says, well, you got to apply for it. Well, at that time, you know, I went and applied and of course I passed. And then they started processing my application and during the interim, I got a position with the Union County Prosecutor's Office as an investigator. Uh, and then, of course, the Bureau came in, and that was how I, I got into law enforcement. But prior to that, I had no intention of that. I really was like every kid in college not knowing what I was going to do, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder, I, uh, there's no way to track this, but I just wonder how many people became police officers because of that movie Serpico. Cause I remember the same thing. I loved that. Movie. It, it, right. And it was something like, wow, this is picture Al Pacino, cool guy, long hair, a beard. He's got a smoking hot girlfriend. He's riding a motorcycle. He's got a sheepdog. He lives in the village. Come on. Who's better than that guy? I figured this is what <laughs> I want to do, you know? And, and it wasn't because See, none of that, for people outside of New York, that, that don't mean shit to me. We lived in the village. Okay, well, I live in a little village. We call it a town. Yeah, well, New York, right. Well, New York. But you know what's interesting? You know we're getting old when I've given this presentation at some, you know, uh, kid's school or something, and I mentioned Serpico, and no one knows no idea what that movie is. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> Serpico, what the hell is that, you know? but yeah. Well, just... Just on the off chance, we've got some youngsters out there that don't know what it is. That was a seminal movie for a variety of reasons, I think. One is because nobody had really ever taken on the issue of corruption. Um, and Serpico was a pretty much a straight-up guy who violated the code, right? Because he did not put up with taking bribes. He did not put up with the way business was being done. And nearly cost him his life, nearly, you know, cost him his uh, reputation. But just what was so what just kind of tell us about Serpico. But what was it that impacted you so much? Was it just because this was a straight up kind of guy um, or was it because you were more addicted to the action? You saw what was going on in New York. Well, that was kind of it. I was I was just fascinated with the policemen that I grew up with. I grew up in the Bronx and the Heights. Okay. You know, I grew up in an area where you either became a cop or a fireman or you were chased by one. You know, there was no in between, you know. So to me, every cop that I pictured was this big, tall guy with a nice thick old clubby if you acted out of line. Then comes Serpico. I said, man, this guy's pretty cool. He's got a beard. Man, he's he's doing police work. He's undercover. Uh, he's able to infiltrate that and yet be able to maintain, you know, his his the code, the oath where he's being honest, and yet he's fighting the establishment on it. That whole, Everything about that movie, just something that really fascinated me. And then, of course, the fact that, you know, he met resistance from uh, the NYPD as far as exposing the corruption and then the ultimate his fate. I, I just thought I wanted to, not that I wanted to work undercover per se, because I never even uh, thought of that at the time, 
but just to be an NYPD officer, I just thought it was a cool thing to do. And it was something that I would like because he, Serpico was working sometimes in the meat market with bookmakers. He was working with all kinds of, uh, of drugs and corruption. I, I, I was just sold on the career. I didn't have a career choice prior to that. This was it. And I went forward and I tried to do everything I possibly could to get into. Now, when I took the FBI test, it was kind of funny because, and I say this in my book, I took the test and I really, uh, it was divine intervention because I, it was a lot of filling. I'll be honest, I was filling in like, I, well, there goes that career. I guess I'm going to do something else. I'm winging some of this stuff, some math problems. And, and next thing you know, I get my results back. And geez, I did well. The first time in my life that I guessed on things, I did exceptionally well. And they moved me to the next level. So I was so blessed to have gotten the opportunity. Folks, if you're if you're worried about the quality of FBI agents, <laughs> that should tell you right there the guy guessed his way in to the FBI. Yeah, yeah but at least hey, at least he didn't become a fireman, right? <laughs> well, God, well, no, the that police have, was hey, hiring too. I've probably done that. <laughs> by the way, you mentioned your book. I want to give a quick shout out to it. It's by Joaquin, which is your That's given name. Man. You go yes. by Jack. Making Jack Falcone, an undercover FBI agent, takes down a mafia family. We will have that listed on our book site. There, Murph, nobody can see that. He talked about the book. He wrote the damn thing. I know, but I want to know how I got it. You know what? I was going to wear like a chain and put it on my neck. Uh, yeah. You know what? It was such a, uh, to me, getting into the FBI was, it was such a moment. My parents were disappointed because they, hold on. They, Murph is pimping out his own book, Manhunters, how we, the real story about how he took down Pablo. Listen, okay. kudos to Steve, kudos to him. This man is a legend as far as I'm concerned. So I was honored to speak to him. What he did in Narcos is just, uh, uh, you know, fantastic, fantastic story. There's a lot of Hollywood. There was a lot of back then, as you know, working dope. There was a lot of bad shit went down, you know, and uh, you were smack in the middle of it where it happened. I mean, I was in New York fighting drugs. You were over there. That's even worse, you know. All right, Morgan, so you can't pick on the FBI the rest of the show now because that's my new best friend. <laughs> See, that's what we do. We, you know, we divide and conquer, Morgan. That's so right. Steve What's and I are going to gang up. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with you. By the way, by the way, pal, I did do some stuff uh, overseas. So I ran into your guys from Pakistan to Turkey to uh, South America. So wow. we had, we crossed paths. Um, yeah, so I, just be careful. I know, I know people too. I, I know Lou Velozzi. <laughs> I know Lou Velozzi too. He's a character, man. I love Lou. And Dominic, Dominic Polifrone. And by the way, we had a real wise guy on, Michael Franzese. So, you know Michael? Oh, I, well, yeah. Well, come on. You, you actually got to tap Michael Franzese. Did you, uh, did you and him go to church afterwards and... Uh... Uh, did he give you his his uh, religious spiel? No, we did meet him though down at the Southern California Gang Conference. So uh, we uh, no, we, yeah, we, he's an interesting car a guy, and uh, needless to say, uh, uh, very disappointed in him because he's totally reinvented himself. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, but isn't that what isn't that what everybody does? Isn't that the whole thing? Is you can go through, uh, and I'm not going to pick on Michael. I'm going to talk about anybody. But you go through your whole life being a shithead. But you go to rehab. You come out of rehab and go, I'm a new guy now. I want to tell you my story about being a shithead, and now I want to make a bunch of money on it. It's kind of like what happened to the good old people who worked their ass off all those years and didn't become a shithead, 
and don't get to tell their story. Thank you. I say that all the time. You hear about people saying, oh, you know, uh, they want to be patted on the back because they buy their kids formula and diapers and spend the weekend. That's what you're supposed to do. A parent is supposed mm-hmm. to take care of the child, period. You shouldn't get an applause for doing that. It's what you're supposed to do. But the same thing with people. You're supposed to live a good, honest life. It isn't like you said, all of a sudden decide to change and now we're supposed to uh, applaud and uh, and build you up? I don't think so. Well, I da- I'm going to take one more divergence and give you a real big story about that because I worked with some of the FBI guys in training, but they were a couple of the guys that brought down the the first hacker to ever be put on the FBI top 10 list, a guy named Kevin Mitnick. Now, I ended up running to Kevin years later. We actually did some things together. But here's a guy who went to prison who was a hacker, who was a criminal, but yet he's now able to turn that thing around. He's now a multimillionaire. Wow. Because, well, he's, he's using his skills, a company called No Before and stuff. He does some stuff. But it's kind of like, you know, again, it goes back to where are the breaks for the good people who didn't go to prison, who didn't do time, who did, I didn't have to pee into a cup and visit my probation officer. You know, it's just it's one of those frustrating things. I, hey, look, good for them that they've turned their life around. But on the other hand, we've got to be careful about how far we glorify people and how high of a pedestal we put people on to reward them for doing the same shit you, I, and Murph were doing for years without getting that pat on the back every week. True. Very well. Okay. Second digression. Now back to a regular scheduled podcast in our drinking game. That is drink number two. Hey, but before we talk about getting into the FBI, you guessed your way in. Um, we want to, <laughs> we want to, <laughs> I love this. Hey, how did you, you may have touched on it earlier, but how did you handle the issue of your citizenship? Well, I became a citizen. That was the... No, duh. I kind of figured that out. Even for a state and local guy, I kind of figured that out. The question was how you solved that. I mean, when when did did that process, once they identified it, how long did... Because normally that's like a 10-year process. No, back then it was weird because I applied for it. I was living at that time in Elizabeth, New Jersey. So uh, I went to and applied and then they called me in to do uh, an interview. So it was kind of funny because, and I, and I challenge a lot of Americans for this too. They would ask you like, who, right? Who are the, uh, what are the Bill of Rights? Uh, what are the, who's your congressman? Who, who are your, your senators? And all of these questions I was being asked. And then again, divine intervention kicked in and I, you know, was winging and, and coming out of whatever I could. And the guy looked at me and he says, look, you're definitely a college grad, you know, you play ball, you're a nice guy and all. Let me ask you some more questions. Boom. The next thing you know, he says, passed and I got it. I got it all within a year. Uh, my, I became a citizen in the bicentennial year of 1976. I applied for the FBI when I graduated college in 1975. So it took only a few months. It wasn't like it is now with lines around the corner. Back then, for whatever reason, I was able to uh, to get through. And once I got that, uh, they reinstated my background investigation, all of my uh, thing. But keep in mind, it took me longer time to become an FBI agent as much I was later on, I found out I was the second Cuban-born FBI agent. And there was when I filed for my Freedom of Information Privacy Act, there were so many memos from the agency saying I should not be hired because I am a Cuban born and the possibility that I could be a mole infiltrating the FBI could be. 
So when I got in in 1980 in the FBI, there was other one, other maybe two, but I want to say one other FBI agent who uh, who was Cuban descent. There weren't Cubans at all. Mostly by that time, it was Puerto Rican, Mexican Americans, and then um, there were a lot of Mormons because they did a lot of their missionary work and they spoke perfect Spanish. And Hoover liked hiring a lot of, of them uh, because of that. But there weren't any Cubans. It wasn't until much later on when they realized that, hey, we left Cuba because of communism. We don't, you know, this is what we're against. Yeah, this, this wasn't a 20-year plan by the Cuban intelligence service to plant me, Jack Garcia, you know, to become an FBI agent. I mean, <laughs> sleep them all. <laughs> yeah, not not that it hasn't happened, but you actually answered my question because I was going to say, we all know what it takes to do a background just to get on and then a background to get security clearances. Being from Cuba it had to complicate things because there's no way they could really go back at that point in time and interview people and talk to anybody. I mean, how did they handle the background in terms of getting back to Cuba or talking to anybody from Cuba? Well, that's a good question. They they weren't able to do that. They would have to rely on maybe stuff that was in uh, uh, in files about to see whether any of my relatives. And at that time, just so you know, my mother's sister, my aunt, was still in Cuba and she was a supporter of Castro. But all of these things I discussed during my interview and say, hey, listen, that was my aunt. I used to love her as a kid. But I know my mother doesn't talk to her. She hasn't been in touch with us. So I think part of the, the test was that they wanted to make sure you were telling the truth. And then you add to that a polygraph exam. So you, you, you really undergo a little more scrutiny. And I think in hindsight, rightfully so. But I, um, I had to go through a lot to become the second Cuban-born FBI agent. And uh, uh, but... Yeah, it was kind of interesting for me, you know. Well, you said you were, what, nine years old when you came here. So there, I was nine I mean, years not, old, yeah. Not a lot in your background at that point in Cuba that they yeah. could access other than family members. Yeah, but, you know, it reminds me, do you remember the case of Ana Montes, the DIA? Oh, yes, analyst? that's a great she case. Was, she was spying for Cuba, but she was born in West Germany and, believe it or not, lived in Topeka, Kansas for a while. Then they moved out to Towson, Maryland. Hey, don't give me the head shake, Murph. <laughs> Don't give me the edge. We can talk about, let me talk about, what was his name? Drew Hogan again, wasn't good enough for the Highway Patrol, so they hired him at DEA. Um, <laughs> hey, don't say anything now, about right? DEA. Poor, poor DEA. You know what DEA stands for, right? Don't expect anything drunk every <laughs> afternoon. Don't even ask. Oh, don't even ask. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. <laughs> and FBI is, FBI is forever bothering Italians. Uh, well, we heard that too. Well, we thought famous but incompetent. That's the other one I heard. Uh, there's another one, but I won't even say it. <laughs> Go ahead, say it. I've heard it all. Fumbling, mumbling idiots. <laughs> and then, then, of course, Murph calls the CIA clowns in action. Boy, yeah. we got ATF. Well, we used to call ATF stood for after the fire because that's when they normally showed up. Well, oh, that one is actually adopted. Oh, oh, that's a good one. Oh, man. Oh, and, Anyway, but no, the reason I say that, you know, but that wasn't until, let me, I was just pulling that up real quick. She was arrested, um, uh, I think in uh, 2000, actually just right after 9-11. She was- but didn't uh, she work at the FBI, Montez, or for yeah, the government? 
Yeah, she worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency. Intelligence, okay. Yeah, DIA. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, they could they could talk about Cubans, but it's 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 not so much where you're born. It's it's your beliefs. It's your ideology. They were able to recruit her by playing on those things for 17 years. She did that, and she was born in West Germany. So I mean, it's kind of like you guys you're you're missing the forest for the trees. You know, to your point, look at the background. You fled Cuba. It's not like Fidel gave you a uh, first class ticket to say, "Hey, we love you. Go to New York, insert yourself, uh, go to public school, don't speak English, get in." trouble, you know, and then join the FBI um, and then, you know, spy for us. I mean, that's kind of such a ludicrous line of thought. But you mentioned something I want to talk about, and it must have been for your book, right? So the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, allows you to go back and file a, you know, uh, a request to the government to produce documents. How big was your FOIA packet when you got that? Is that what you did it for was to write the book to see what was written about you? No, I actually did it when I was on the job. As soon as I got in, I decided to, somebody told me, he goes, you should check into that because I wanted to know how you go from recruiting heavily for Spanish speaking agents. And then of course I wasn't get, getting in, even though uh, with divine intervention and, <laughs> uh, and that I still passed the test. So I was wondering why it took me so such a long time uh, to get in. So I really thought that the bureau didn't want me uh, for that for whatever reason. So I, I wasn't that though. Wasn't that like firing a shot across their bow? You're just a new agent, and here you are filing a FOIA request to say what the hell were you guys doing? Yeah, but I didn't do it like immediately. Within about a year, and uh, by that time, uh, everybody I knew, people in the office, I got along with everybody, and some agents were doing it too. They were all like, "Hey, let's just check the Freedom of Information private." So, of course, I did it as well, and it took like a while to get. And, of course, you get the redacted and all of that. But uh, I was just curious to find out what, what it was. Did you get any blowback from your uh, supervisors, your SSAs, or, you know, the SAC or no, anything? No, I tell you what. My first office was Newark, New Jersey. It was just great. The people there, I was one of those guys who was uh, – I came in, and I was blessed to be put in what we used to call a heavy squad that handled bank robberies, fugitives, terrorism. And I was like a new agent there, which is, uh, it's unheard of that you would land there. Most of those guys are all SWAT guys, experienced agent. And the reason I landed there was because I spoke Spanish. And at that time we were investigating Omega-7. Omega-7 was an anti-Castro group that operated in the U.S. And they were single-handedly blowing up any businesses that dealt with Cuba, they even went as far as assassinating a diplomat. So they was they needed somebody to build a network of informants in the Union City, which was predominantly uh, New Jersey community for Cubans. So I was blessed because of my Spanish to to be able to learn and work among such uh, fantastic guys. And but I got to know everybody. It wasn't done like, let me get my freedom of information just to see. It was more like a casual uh, non-event, really. Nobody said anything to me about that. All right. Well, I thought you said you, I thought when you said you're on a heavy squad, it's because you were six foot four, 300. That, so I, I didn't know if that was the way. That, that was, that was probably <laughs> it. You do for the that, door ram. <laughs> well, I, I say that in jest, but I also say that is when I think, and when most people think of an FBI agent, man or woman. Somebody who's six foot four, three hundred pounds, event you know, trying to work that may be that may have been one of your best 
gifts too in terms of working undercover because they're looking at you going, no way this guy's an FBI agent. I mean, you were you had to be one of the biggest guys on the squad. Well, let me tell you a bit about that because in my book I talk about this. What happened was I played football about 260 in college, right? I applied for the FBI. I never looked big. I, I'd always looked like I was I was a power lifter. I was a big guy, you know, but not big fat guy, big big guy kind of. What position did you play? A in defensive football? tackle. Now the part you're going to love, Morgan, is that I went and I before you became an agent and went to Quantico, you get sworn in at that time was at the Newark office, which recruited me. I went in, no problem. I get down to Quantico, and for some reason, some assistant director down there has a hard on for me. And he's looking at me working out. Now, grant you, I didn't go in top shape to Quantico. But then again, when I was in training for the football season, I never went in, and that's why I got into shape during the course of it. Well, anyway, he then calls me into the office and say, the chart, and you know that famous chart that if you're six foot High four, weight proportional, right, I'm yeah. supposed to weigh like 200 pounds. You kidding me? 200 pounds? I was, I was like 12 years old when I was uh, 200 pounds. So he says to me, "We're giving you two choices. You can resign, lose the weight that we'll set up for you for losing uh, this, and you could come back, or if you don't resign." You will be fired and you will not, you can't be reinstated. Now, this is after 12 days. Now, I'm doing what everybody else is doing. I'm not the last guy running by any means. The guy just took offense to me. Okay. Now, what happens is I go home and I'm thinking, shit, they didn't want me. You know, they, the, the unknown FBI from outside. It's a whole different than what it is in the inside, you know? So I said to myself, well, I guess they didn't want me. Now, I had quit my job with the Union County Prosecutor's Office. They gave me a going away party. So what am I going to do now? Go back and say, hey, guys, I want to come back. Uh, well, what happened? Well, I got fired because I was too fat. Are you freaking kidding me? That's embarrassing. So I sat there, and it wasn't until the class counselor sent me a postcard with all the names of the people in the class wrote, lose the weight, come back, beat these fuckers. And I got that, and all of a sudden I heard the theme from Rocky. I went out there, I started working <laughs> out, and I lost the weight. So before I was sworn in, I had to be weight. But they made my weight not 220 pounds, they made it to 240. So I weighed at 240, went down there, and the class that I was originally in, was still there, and I come in, and they all welcome me back. And uh, so I, I, I went through a lot because for that time, the two months that I took, because I went to the class in February, but I came back in April. So all of that time, I was unemployed, and I didn't want to go back to my Union County Prosecutor's Office. I was embarrassed. So I worked out every day, didn't eat, lost the weight, and successfully um, uh, what do you call it, graduated from the academy. But that was probably also could be one of the reasons I decided for the Freedom of Information Act. I wanted to see, you know, what the hell was that all about? Was it because I was a second Cuban FBI agent? Well, what the hell was that all about? What was up this guy's rectum that he decided that you were going to be his target? Were you just, I mean, I get 
everybody, there's always some class where somebody does something, but you didn't do anything other than show up and be there. What, what would, did you ever figure out what was this, what was Asshat's problem? Listen, I, I could speculate, but this guy didn't like me. I think his name was Jim McKenzie or something like that. And he was, uh, had a heart on for me and, uh, he decided he was such a coward that he did not even hit me face to face. He had some of his lackeys approach me with that decision to leave, which I thought it was bad. At least give me a fighting chance. You have to, if I didn't make the physical, then by all means, I would have been sent home. I get that. But you don't have a guy, a man, a grown man who has a job. And a, I didn't have a family at the time, but leave and go there and you expose them to this and then say, well, we got second thoughts on the guy. What we're going to do is uh, uh, he doesn't fit the weight standard. But that's not my fault. That's the, you guys should have picked that up. I don't go home at night and memorize the chart. If I didn't fit the chart, somebody should have said he doesn't qualify, period. Well, before you even got sworn in, before you showed up, it should have said, hey, we're going to swear you in as soon as you drop this weight. That would have been a different thing. But right. well, you had, that's hey, now rewind well, for just wait a minute. When you came back in April, was he still there? Yes, he was still there. What was his position then? He was the same. He was assistant director. He's still in charge of it. He's still yeah. a dick, right? Oh, yeah. a huge dick. And the guy was like, they even had the courtesy to even call me in and say, and say hey, listen, I had to do this. Congratulate. But none of that. And you know what? It, 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 and that just tells you about a person's character. Right. And, and to me, what really impressed me was how great the counselor was. His name was Jim Pledger. That man was a great guy. And, and, the, uh, and the classmates of mine made me feel welcome. And everybody who I tell this story to is in awe of it. But it happened to me. Mm -hmm. I was terminated after 12 days, not because I flunked the test, not because I couldn't do something, not because I gave up. It's because I didn't fit the weight standards uh, at the time, which they should have told me like, hey, you don't meet the weight standards. You got to get down to that weight. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, move on. Yeah. So that was my issue with them. Well, let's rewind for just a second. I don't want to he spend was probably too much time from on Kansas. It. Yeah. Hey, uh, talk real quick. You said the Union County prosecutor. So what were you doing at the uh, prosecutor's office? I was working welfare fraud, uh, and it's uh, mostly uh, it's it's part of identifying uh, all the fraud that consists of in the welfare system. Uh, I was hired with them as a, an investigator, a criminal investigator, because I, all my previous experience I had in the paternity unit in the welfare board. So I knew the welfare rules. So our job was to identify either to a tip or on our own, follow this, create a case on the individual and uh, immediately, you know, get them arrested for uh, uh, committing welfare fraud. So it was very busy squad. So did this involve a lot of math? Uh <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> Thank God. Okay. Yes. Right. No, I just, we kind of, you kind of glossed over that, but I just wanted to kind of uh, complete that as that's what you were doing beforehand. So you dropped out. How long did it, and I think you mentioned this, how long did it take you to lose the weight before you came back in? Well, I was February uh, 4th class. I left on the 12th. So that's eight days, not 12 days. And then I came back on May 4th class. So we got uh, About three months, uh, February, three months. Yeah, and there were times, by the way, I didn't even eat. I mean, I really went on this crusade to lose the weight. 
not just for myself, just so I could shove it in that guy's ass mm-hmm. because of what he did to me. How much you know? weight did you lose? Well, I was 265 when I got weighed by them before I was let go. But on the way home, I stopped at every ice cream parlor, every McDonald's, every <laughs> Burger King. I blew up like a tick on the way home. And then I go home. I'm eating like I'm going to the chair because I'm saying, yeah, they got their way. They got rid of me. This is a bullshit. Who would believe this is an excuse? And I ate it. And it wasn't until I got that postcard from Jim Pledger, the counselor, that I realized, hey, you know what? It isn't. It's that jerk off who caused this to happen. And it was a personal vendetta for whatever reason he had, because all of this stuff could have been prevented if that was an issue. When I got went up to get te- the guy should have said, hey, wait a minute, you look too big. Why didn't they say that? Yeah. Hey, did you ever watch Band of Brothers? No, uh, I've you, heard of it. I've been wanting. I got that on my to do. list. You should watch it because there is a character in there that will remind you of this guy. I'll just tell you this. His name is Captain Sobel. And this is the same kind of guy who dicks with everybody, messes with everybody, including Dick Winters, who becomes uh, uh, ends up being a higher rank than this guy, becomes a hero during World War II and D-Day. And the same thing is because the one of the great scenes is when Lieutenant first, he was second Lieutenant Winters. Now he's Major Winters. Captain Sobel is still a captain. He's the kind of guy that... Yeah, you know, the, the colonel brings him in and says, you've done a hell of a good job training people. We're going to send you back to train more people because they don't want you anywhere near the front lines because you're a walking, steaming pile of uh, crap. <laughs> anyway, when you watch yes. that, this guy will be Captain Sobel. So let's talk about then getting through the academy. Did you now in once you were back there, you said the, the guy left you alone, no problems. You graduated on time. No, he, he didn't. He, of course, I, when I got weighed in Newark. I met the weight. I came down there. I had to go wait again. And again, not for him. He would have others do this for his bidding. And then, of course, didn't have any problem with, because, uh, you know, as you know, in in the police academies, there are three facets. of it. There is the physical facet. There is the academic. And then there's the firearms. I didn't have problems with firearms. I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't ever thought I had problems with physical because no matter what, I mean, I played football in college. I got into shape to play football. This is to get into shape for the FBI to do what? A mile and a half and 50 push-ups? You know what I mean? So I could have done that easily. But the academics to me is what I found difficult. And I really, um, through my whole career, even though my parents pushed education, I was always slacking about it. And I remember uh, a dear friend of mine who has passed away, another agent, and T.J. Murray, him and I would just sit for countless hours and just uh, he would teach me how to study and work and and really pull me through in preparing me for these exams. So that was the part that I found it tough. But I, and also failing grade at the academy is 85, which, you know, a lot of that's people in the outside. Most un- that's a B in most universities, you know. Exactly. So to me, I really dedicated myself to it and. I, I was passed. I was such an honor for me to have graduated with the FBI. And of course, when you're down there, all you get is your badge. And as you know, the FBI badge is a little tiny thing. Uh, and you don't get your credentials until they're are handed you saying, to you. Are you saying you have badge envy, Jack? Yes, I do. Those little badges, really, we need to redo that again. They, no one believes it. Everybody goes, What's, get the, what is that? 
Yeah, you got the, the, the bubblegum machine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Very small bet. And then what happened is once you get your creds, I had to report to my first office, Newark, and uh, I loved it. I, I, I look back on my career. I loved it. Yes, there were plenty of assholes like that guy who gave me heat uh, with my weight. But there's also with so many great men and women that uh, I wouldn't back. And I worked in a lot of offices. You know, I was in Newark. I was in New York, Philadelphia. I've been in San Juan. I've been in Miami. Uh, I, I, I've been Philadelphia. And I, I just met, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. But after 26 years, I had to pull the plug. I said, I'm out. You know, uh, that's some, I passed the baton. Can somebody else do this, you know? Well, let's let's continue on then with your career because you you got onto you said the heavy squad and that's where we really did a digression. So drinking game that's number three. So you started working <laughs> bank robberies and stuff. So what was it like getting past the academy, getting past all of the stuff, having your badge, your creds, the gun, and actually starting to do some real work? What did that you know what what was that like to finally get in the game? It's like being football. You don't want to ride the bench. You want to be in the game. You want to play a position. What was it like to get into the game now? You know, it was great, but I, I handled it differently. I know some people, you know, you as you know, in law enforcement, you get somebody out of the academy and they're like a blue flamer. You know, they got to be right and doing this. And they, you know, they're, they're just running around with the heads cut off. I took the opposite approach. I came in. I knew that this was a heavy squad of guys with great reputations. So I kind of took the, hey, I'm here if you need me, any help that you want, any time of the day I'm available. I remember they would go out on a fugitive arrest. They would cut me out because I was the new guy, you know, the FNG. So uh, they would go and uh, they would do their stuff. And I I was willing to do, I paid my dues. They were checking me out because just like when you go to work on any squad, you know, you got to make your own, you got to make your own rep, you know? And I, I was there, willing to work. And then finally, when I got into it with them, I just, they, they brought me in as one of them. And that feeling of uh, a teamwork, it's kind of like being in a football team. It's kind of like, you know, you're, you're around guys, you all have a mission, you accomplish the mission safely, you, you go back. It was part of something. I loved it. I love working fugitives. Now, keep in mind, this is 1980. We didn't start working dope it, uh, until, what was it, Steve, 84, right? The, uh, yeah, I think it was 84, the FBI started working dope because DEA couldn't do it. <laughs> Steve, oh, come on, it's a nice joke. Shot. Nice shot. Oh. That was a shot, right? <laughs> no, no, no. They somehow, I don't know whose idea it was, but anyway, they started working as dope. Now, because I speak Spanish, I was a perfect guy for that. And uh, I started working uh, narcotics and Ever since that, that's all I did through my career is work narcotics everywhere and uh, worked a lot of cases with DEA, some great men and women. I worked with them in Philly and New York and Newark. And, of course, we had our battles just like they had the battle with us. And and it's weird because I was talking to Steve a while back and I said to him, when you go out there to do a case, you run into so many other agencies that are out there working dope. So you either have DEA, ATF, immigration, customs, local police department, FBI, and it becomes one giant clusterfuck. 
So you have to constantly, the guy, when I'm doing the undercover, I'm on the street, so I don't know what's happening. But the other agents will see another car going by a couple of times. They will pull them over. What are you here for? Well, we're here because we tell, uh, we have some big guy is buying some dope from this guy. Well, forget that. Forget the mission. It's over. We go home. So we had a lot of drive runs because we kept stepping on each other. If I had it all over, they should have one giant uh, office where all the different alphabet agencies are all working together. So there is no going out there and and ending the mission. What but that kind, happened. What kind of dope are you smoking? Everybody's going to get into a room and work together. I mean, come well, on. You know what? You're you're right, but that's the same as all these agencies that we kept stepping on each other. And it was horrible all the time. Well, and that's why there's been so much set up for deconfliction. They had used to have a system called IndyPix, the National Drug Pointer Intelligence System, I think. You know, there's so many cases ended up. I can't remember which episode it was, Murphy, if you were telling me about it, but no, it was uh it was you down in Miami. Wasn't there a blue on blue? You guys were doing an investigation. You were investigating yeah. them, they're investigating you, and it turned out to be cops. <laughs> it's highly a PD. Yeah. We're doing surveillance on them, they're surveilling us. <laughs> I know it happens all the time. It, it, it's kind of crazy, but yeah, that's when we started working, you know, dope. And, um, I personally liked it to me because it, it was new for us. It was also when you work narcotics, there's a lot of stats that are, are results from it. There's also, you get to do everything from testifying, search warrants, arrest warrants, or it kind of keeps you in the mix of what law enforcement it's all about. It isn't having to draft uh, uh, a search warrant for one particular case. It just constantly keeps you moving. Uh, dope cases are, I loved, I loved working with it. It was just something. And then I got working more on the cover just solely because I spoke Spanish. And as I got in the bureau, that 240 became 245, 250, 260, 270 in my way. And then I grew the hair, the typical goatee, the earring. And next thing you know, I just started working undercover because, you know, I didn't uh, I didn't look like an agent. Yeah, well, that that's exactly what I was getting at. I mean, you don't fit the mold of somebody who looks like a UC. You look like a big, you know, if we were talking to when we talked to Jay Dobbins, did his episode, you know, ATF, Jaybird, you get big guys. You know, they're outlaw motorcycle gangs or they're big, you know, like you say, Colombian or, you know, drug dealers. But the FBI also has, I mean, did you have a challenge? Did they have the fitness test back then? Did you have to pass an annual or a biannual fitness test? Well, we had the physical every year. And the good thing is my birthday, which, by the way, I'm hoping you guys send me a, a gift. Uh, I'll be 70 years old. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we got you. Uh, we're going to send uh, you a gift on your birthday, but we're not going to tell people what day it, actual day it is. But suffice it to say, you're turning, you're turning a big milestone here. Yes. And, and, and you know, but the fitness test. Out, right. The fitness test. The interesting part about that is that my my birthday came the day usually before the budget was approved on October 1st. So they always ran out of money. So that means the physicals were canceled. So I was like, I'm ready for my physical. Oh, <laughs> shucks. Really? Shit, man. I missed it. I didn't take physicals for a long time ago. And when you work in New York City. Nobody gives a rat's ass what you look like. You're out there dealing with traffic. You're out there dealing with parking. You're out there dealing with all kinds of criminals. Who's going to bother you with this stuff? So nobody really cared. And I kind of 
felt, you know, when nobody really cared what I was looking like or how big I got. If anything, they said, well, the big is going to help them in the case that left me alone. Now, that didn't happen all the time. When I was working in Philadelphia, I had a crazy supervisor who, no matter I finished working on the cover, wanted me in so he could weigh me because he was gunning for me. But I got out of Philadelphia as soon as possible and went to New York. No regrets. I love being in New York. No one cared about anything. You just wanted to survive your tour in New York. To me, it was home. Well, before we get into talking about the big case, we want to talk about some of your work you did usually uh, uh, against organized crime like Cosa Nostra. There's some interesting stuff, too, comes out of your book and everything. But you did some work down in Miami because um, Miami not only had a problem with corruption and the Mary Alito boat lift, like you said, but they ended up having a lot of problems with cops and dope and stuff down there. And that's, it's always a tough thing to have to work cases against law enforcement. But at the end of the day, that's one of the big things the FBI does is when it becomes to, you know, uh, civil rights violations, when it comes to corruption, public corruption, that's one of your mandates. So just talk a little bit about that case down there or a couple of the cases where unfortunately you had to target law enforcement, but Murph and I will tell you, it's a standard, standard thing we say. Uh, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop, you know, and you don't want this stuff going on. So Talk to us a little bit about Miami. Well, you know, it, it, it's weird. I got into, as you know, we handled that violation, and uh, I started working it. Uh, I worked uh, lots of cases of police corruption cases. It was in Broward County, Hollywood uh, Police Department, Boston Police Department, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, and, and you're right. We Having corrupt cops don't help us in law enforcement. Our job is to root them out. The problem that I found in law enforcement, there are some police departments that look at it as like, hey, if the guy's a bad cop, that's not our problem. We just stay away from him. But I always respond, it is your problem. You need to identify this dirty guy because he's a reflection of all, all of us. us. So we need to eradicate this guy. But some people are still in that mentality that, if you're internal affairs, you're a rat. It's called a rat squad. Or even guys that I work with in the NYPD, because we had a task force, it would be as like, oh, you're working cops. I go, of course I'm working dirty cops. They're bad. They make our business bad. Um, working them, uh, I always played the role of either a, a wise guy or I played the role of a drug dealer, and they would move items for me. Uh, we were quite successful in some of the cases that, you know, we work and it's considered one of the priorities in the FBI. So we uh, I write in my book about the Hollywood Police Department. I didn't write about the Boston Police Department. That was just a horrible uh, thing. But people say the cops, we worked in conjunction with the police. When we worked the Boston Police Department, we took down about 13 guys. I think it was 13. The um, We were partners with the Boston Police Department. So they worked alongside us. So it isn't just us doing something. Hollywood was a little different. We didn't include the Hollywood Police Department for whatever reason. But then at the end, we had a problem with them giving us up as we were moving further into uh, the police department. So working police uh, corruption cases, uh, uh, it kind of gives you a mixed feeling because it, it kind of destroys why 
you know, why would these people violate the oath and tarnish the badge that we so proudly wear? You know, that's the that's the echoes of Serpico we were just talking about earlier. I mean, you listen to this and it's like watching Serpico and looking at what's happening now. It's like, guys, this is the problem. If you don't police your own and we have to come in and do it, like, say, from an FBI standpoint, they that creates conflict. It creates friction. It creates consent decrees, which then are held over those agencies heads for a long time. And that's the thing it goes back to. But if you've got the cooperation to say, look, when a department says we don't want dirty cops either, and if you know something, we don't, let's work together to do it. But when they work against you, I mean, that that that's not only violates the public trust, it violates the ability for the public to actually trust you that you're doing the right thing for them. Well, my my chapter in the Hollywood Police Department, it worked against we were working these Hollywood police officers, and I'm not talking rookies. I'm talking guys with 17 years on the job. We were working them. They were bringing other players into it. We're working. All of a sudden, the special agent in charge said, hey, listen, these are our partners. Uh, We need to include them. We told them, don't include them because I actually met the chief, and the chief is good friends with one of the targets that I'm working. So I said, sorry, we're going to have to. Sure enough, they have a meeting. Within a week or two, the guy stops taking my phone calls. I go down to Florida to see him. He's ignoring me. The guy goes MIA. They found him and the other cops all decided to um, uh, re- uh, retire to save their uh, pension. Then it turned out to be that uh, they started accusing us that there was a leak and it came from the FBI which was a total lie. And then we find out that the chief told some people who in turn told a girl that one of the detectives that we were looking at, she confided in them. And once they heard that we were agents, she automatically, these guys went and retired. Now that put us in harm's way because what happens when you're an undercover and all of a sudden, this stuff is leaked as far as us being undercover agent. What's to keep these guys from whacking us? What's to keep these guys from doing something because they now know our identity, uh, which is what we're worried. And listen, that happened in New York. They had those two killer cops, Caracapa and um, I forgot the other guy's name. But you don't want, it's got to be well-maintained. And it's because we decided to go forward and telling the chief, he opened up his big mouth, and next thing you know, the case was ended. And we could have, we had so many opportunities to get more dirty cops, but they worked on the premise of this. Like the guy would say over and over to me, Look, all you got to do is I'll bring you a cop, you give him a bag or a box, and you say to him, Take this box to such and such a place. They're not going to look in the box. They're not going to ask about the box. They're not going to look for documentation. But you guys want to tell them what's in the box. And I told them, I said, we, they need to know what they're doing because I don't want them to find religion, open the box, find some illicit contraband, and then come and lock me up. So I want them to know, of course, you know, we don't want that plausible deniability that they're going to say, 
hey, I didn't know anything. So we lost a lot of guys that we could have had, but their mindset was that, hey, I'll do whatever you guys want me to do. <clears throat> I'll drive this car to this place, but don't ask what's in the car, in the trunk. I don't want to know. So it became a little tough for us to bring these guys, but those are the kind of guys that we were dealing with. There were a lot of these uh, mentalities of these police officers that, first of all, as we all know in law enforcement, somebody gave me a box and say, hey, a guy who looks like me, okay, driving an Escalade and some other guys and say, take this box and bring it over to so-and-so. He would even say, what are you nuts? What's in there? I'm not going to see. What do you got? But they didn't want to know. So we couldn't, we obviously didn't go out and prosecute them because we we had yeah, nothing got, on them. Yeah, well, that's one of the elements of crime. You have to you have to prove knowledge, but the fact that they were not inquisitive enough as an experienced police officer to ask, the truth is they were an experienced police officer and knew you couldn't prove knowledge. That's why they didn't want to know. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's not one of exactly. that's not one of our professionals. That's not somebody that belongs with us. No, and I think we told this little story earlier too, Murph, when we were at the Southern California Gang Conference. We had there was a guy down there, a former NYPD cop, who went to jail for fourteen years for working with one of the crime families or drug drug traffickers. And this guy was like nonchalant about it. He was like laughing. It's like it's the funny thing. And we had a couple of people said, "Oh, you should have this guy on your show." And then they said, "You should have his partner on your show." And me and Murph go, not a chance, because you know why? We might have them on the show if they showed contrition, if this was really a story of redemption, is look, I did something wrong, I want you guys to learn. He he when we first met him, he goes, I'm podcast gold. I'm like, what the fuck do you mean? He says, I'm podcast gold. People get me on the podcast, they love it because of my story. And I'm going, Well, I can tell you one podcast you're not gonna be on. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, no, it just it just it it irks you because it goes back to, you know, you, think about this too, Murph. It's like when you started, when I started, I made seven dollars and fifty cents an hour starting off as a rookie cop, and you know yeah, when I was a, less than that. yeah, and when I was a cop in Garden City, um, I joined the police department to get on uh, into investigations. But as a as a city cop, I stop a car one night. It's got two hundred and two thousand dollars in the trunk. Long story short, I mean, it's just these guys were involved in buying dope. Now, here I am. I wouldn't have made $200,000 in 10 years at my job paying child support, was divorced and remarried. And it's, But you know what never crossed my mind? It never crossed my mind taking the money. You know what the money was to me? It's a trophy shot. It's like, look what I did, motherfuckers. I call up my friends and it's like, hey, you know, I had people call me say, I heard about the seizure. It's a trophy shot. People like us live for that trophy. It's like, you know, we got it. The thought of taking the money never, ever crossed my mind because you're just not wired that way. Now, I used to joke with people. They say, well, how much did you find? It's not a question of how much I found. It's how much I turned in. Wink, wink. You know, <laughs> but no, I was joking with him. But I had I had plenty. Of <clears throat> just for the record, I had plenty of witnesses there. Um, <laughs> we, we counted that money twice. No, but but to, that's to your point is that when you're doing it for the right reasons, stuff like that dope money never crossed your mind. If I had found 100 kilos of Coke, it would have been, I'm seizing this, I'm arresting your ass, because I want that trophy shot when I go drinking, and somebody says, I got a story for you, I want to, you know, you want to be one of those guys that, oh, I've got a story for you too, you know, here's mine, you know, and it's like guys unzipping their pants, you know, hey, check me out, you know. Yeah, no, you're right, well, listen, it's it's a dirty business, uh, and, now, and I'm sure, you know, when we used to do a lot of dope, and, and I'm sure the large volumes that 
that Steve did. I mean, you walk into locations, millions of dollars are in, in, in place, you know, but that's why I've always believed in working with a partner. It's always good to have that. It's always the same thing in law enforcement. If I ever interview a female, I want another female with me. Uh, I don't want the allegations being made. I don't want anybody ever saying, well, this guy was alone with this. It, it, it's nowadays, because keep in mind, guys, nowadays, when we all testify, the fact that we're law enforcement is not really something that people will revere. They attack us, understands. I mean, we've all testified. I have been attacked, and it's all like provide all giglio information. Uh, what about this? And and it's all trying to get you painted as a uh, as a bad person. Where in the first time when I got in the bureau in the eighties, we were like, hey, FBI, if whatever he says is it. But now we're just we're we're attacked. Uh, so you have to be careful. Not only when you're out there in the streets alone, but also you have to be careful everywhere. And I always believe in always bring somebody along in as, the interview uh, room and stuff. Hey, we got to do something real quick too. We violated one of our old rules, and I, I wrote this down earlier because you used an acronym, and then we used a term, so we have to define all acronyms. So earlier, you we know what it means, but FNG. Tell everybody what FNG is. That's a uh, fucking new guy. Yeah, if you've ever watched That's Blue <laughs> Thunder with Roy Scheider, you know. They would. They had. They had a different hat. It's called Jaffo. They said they had. Yeah. What's that mean, Jaffo? Just another fucking observer. <laughs> so you wore the Jaffo hat. <laughs> and then you said Giglio. So let folks know what Giglio material is. Any kind of stuff that's in your files against you. Any. Let's say, for instance, you have been busted for lying and in an investigation, perjury, or uh, perjured yourself some kind of way, or you you lack candor in an internal investigation. That has to be prevented. That has to be submitted to the defense, and they, of course, could uh, attack you with that and make you less credible to the jury. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including if you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released part one, episode one of The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos, Cali edition, Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell, Go in-depth, 16 hours, about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the... Game of Crimes.